0: All right. You can have your Bibles handy, and if you would like, you can turn them to First Corinthians 14. Uh, we will be picking up somewhat uh, where we left off last week. Uh, we find ourselves in the third part of the three-part message that I am uh, preaching right now about signs and wonders. Do you recall uh, that in part one we spent time understanding the old testament precedent definition and purpose for signs and wonders uh, we don't ever divorce the bible from context right we don't read something in the new testament and pretend as though it never came up uh, before unless it never came up before and if it has come up before, then we want to go back and we want to look at where it has come up in order that we can understand properly uh, how God has used things in the past, knowing that our God is an unchanging God, that he functions in a way that is faithful and consistent, and in doing so, if God has used signs and wonders in the past, uh, then how has he used them? Until what purpose has he used them? A- and to what degree has he used them? And this helps inform us as to what he is doing now. In part two, we found that God used signs and wonders. We, we, part one was the Old Testament. Part two, we found that He used signs and wonders in the exact same way in the New Testament throughout Jesus' ministry as He did and as, as God did in the Old Testament, drawing for us a line of consistency by which we can judge New Testament manifestations of these signs. Then we considered these New Testament manifest, manifestations and signs. With an eye toward understanding how they apply to the church, seeing that Jesus and the apostles did signs and wonders, Paul instructed regarding them in 1 Corinthians, and today we're going to speak as to why it is that we do not hold or subscribe to the idea that signs and wonders are to be a regular, functional part of the New Testament church from a biblical perspective. Now, last time we were together, recall, we finished in 1 Corinthians 13. And in 1 Corinthians 13, that chapter on charity, we really bridged from chapter 12. Chapter 12 was the instruction that Paul gave regarding these unique sign gifts, and not just the sign gifts, but speaking to any number of gifts. He he was talking about the nature of the, the church as a body, and he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. So we, we talked through that. We saw the listing of the manifestations as Paul uh, laid it out in 1 Corinthians. For to one is given, this is verse 8 of chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, for to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues and he speaks to the fact that they work under the self same spirit and then he gave as it were a bit of a a little bit later a bit of a a um, hierarchy of those gifts at the end of 1 Corinthians 12 however Paul said in verse 31 but covet earnestly the best gifts and yet i show unto you a more Excellent way, and that breached into 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul was speaking about charity, right? And he spoke about how we can have all of these magnificent sign and wonder capacities about us, but if we are not exercising charity, it is empty. Charity being that word for love, the biblical definition of love being given in this chapter. Charity suffereth long and is kind, charity envieth not, charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. So we consider that definition, and then what Paul said is, charity never faileth, verse 8. Charity never faileth all of these other things, they are earthly and they are temporal. Even to the extent that we are doing them in a capacity of the church, they are still a, an element that is rooted in the nature of this world and these things which will pass. But what we carry into heaven with us is that which we do in love. So Paul is reorienting the perspective of the Corinthian church to back off a little bit on the nature of their priority upon these signed gifts and how they had elevated those in the church with them and these sorts of things and to reorient their mind upon this idea of charity. And I begin with highlighting, uh, with a highlighting of the uniqueness of the Jewish people as we finish understanding this context. At the beginning of 1 Corinthians, way back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the Bible said this in verses 22 and 23. Paul writing here, he said, For the Jews require a sign. And the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. Paul speaks to the fact here that the Jews, among the people of the world, have a very unique expectation for signs and wonders as a proof of of, of spiritual and religious authority uh, that has accompanied them throughout the years. This goes all the way back, as we traced in in the first of, of these sermons, to the Exodus right? And the fact that God used signs and wonders, we we could really trace it all the way back to Abraham, but God used signs and wonders as a means by which to validate his promises and his authority among the nation. So it should not surprise us that God would operate in this manner with them and that the Jewish people, as a general rule, would expect that after thousands of years of seeing that, through the law and the prophets. But what makes this concept worth our time to consider is to ask a very pointed question in relation to the teachings and promises of the Bible regarding sign gifts. When we see Paul speak to this idea of signs and wonders in the church, the question I want you to ask, remember, we've, we've talked through any number of things. We've talked through the fact that signs and wonders were used at, at, at unique times in history, times where God was attempting to validate his authority in unique ways. The next question we ask as we consider how God functionally uses signs and wonders in the church is this, who are they for? Who are those signs for? Who is going to be given these signs by God? And the clearest expression of this is found in 1 Corinthians 14. I gave you that review of chapters 12 and 13. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is spending much effort expressing why those in the church should desire the gift of prophecy above the gift of tongues. Why they should desire to speak words in their own language rather than in a foreign language. So Paul says this in verses 1 through 4 of 1 Corinthians 14. Follow after charity. And remember, this is right after the charity chapter, right? Follow after charity and desire spiritual gifts, but rather that ye may prophesy... For he that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God, for no man understandeth him, howbeit in the Spirit he speaketh mysteries. But he that prophesieth speaketh unto men uh, to edification and exhortation and comfort. We'll continue there in just a moment. Uh, For the sake of time, I I won't get into all of that that context. Verse 4 says, He that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifieth himself, but he that prophesieth edifieth the church. But Paul goes on to exhort them to desire the gift of, of well expressing the word of God in their own language as opposed to expressing some uh, element of of, uh, communication in another language that people cannot understand. And remember what we're dealing with here. As we see prophecy in this context, this is not speaking of the concept of foretelling the future. When we consider prophecy in the Bible, there are two elements to prophecy. When we say we're going to have a prophecy conference, you want to read, you want me to to preach out of the book of Daniel and the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ, right? That's a prophecy conference. But when we consider the concept of prophecy, remember what the prophets were there to do. The prophets were there to tell a message. And that message was for the people of that day but then they would speak to those things that were surely to come to pass in the future as marks, again, of proof and authority of their message. And so prophecy was significantly more throughout the Bible about foretelling or foretelling the the word of God than it was about foretelling the future. And so when we consider the concept of prophecy here, it's very clear from the way Paul uses the word in 1 Corinthians 14, that it's talking about telling the church things that are going to happen edify them, right? It's about telling forth the word of God. It's about exemplifying and expressing the nature of the word of God. And this is certainly not outside of the context of the nature of prophecy. And when we consider the concept of an unknown tongue, we'll see it in just a little bit in the book of Acts. uh, When when the, the concept of tongues was introduced, the apostles were speaking and every man heard it in their own language. That's what tongues was. It was not some ecstatic babbling of something that nobody understood. And even in this case, on the day of Pentecost, the people there did not need interpreters because they were hearing the preaching in their own language. So it was a language that was familiar to those who were hearing, though not familiar to those who were speaking it. These are important bounds for us to understand the nature of this particularly unique uh, uh, sign and wonder that of tongues. Now, as Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 14, he is so emphatic about the nature of how important it is that the people in the church understand what is being said in the church. That he says that as it relates to speaking in an unknown tongue, if a man speaks in an unknown tongue congregationally, there must without fail be someone there to interpret him or else he had better just keep silent. Better for him just to close his mouth than for him to speak in this unknown tongue and have nobody there to interpret so that the church might be edified. So then Paul says this in verses 18 through 22, jumping ahead for the sake of time. I thank my God I speak with tongues more than y'all. Yet in the church I had rather speak five words with my understanding that by my voice I might teach others also, than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. Brethren, be not children in understanding, howbeit in malice be ye children, but in understanding be men. In the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people, and yet for all that will they not hear me, saith the Lord. Wherefore tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not, but prophesying serveth not for them that believe not, but for them which believe." So here's what Paul just said. The church assembles for edification. Tongues is not a gift intended for this purpose. To that end, he would rather speak only five words in his own tongue with the understanding of what he's saying. Now, the fact that, that, that he acknowledges here that tongues was something that, he, that, that the person speaking did not necessarily understand um, lends itself to a measure of ambiguity as it relates to what was coming out of their mouths. We, we can't speak to that one way or another. But what we do know is this. Paul says, far better for me to speak five words with my own understanding than 10,000 words in the church in an unknown tongue. Because those five words will do more good for the believers in the church than those 10,000 words that nobody can understand. Then Paul does something very interesting. He quotes from what he calls the law here. It's actually a quote from Isaiah chapter 28, verse 12. And he speaks to God's prophetic promise That there would come a day when God would speak to this people with men of other tongues and other lips, but they will not hear. With men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people. Okay, now we've got to ask that, that good grammatical question when you're reading: pronoun antecedent reference. Who's this people? We're in Isaiah 28, verse 12. God is talking about reaching out to Israel, right? That God will reach out to his covenant people with a sign. And that sign will be people with other tongues. But they will not listen. And Paul connects this not necessarily to simply people of other cultures, people that would not speak the language that the Jews are speaking. But Paul connects this to the nature of speaking in tongues in the church at the time, in in the New Testament church, in the book of Acts. So Paul then gives the purpose of this gift. He says, if that is true, what Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 28, verse 12, that with tongues will I speak unto this people, with unknown tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people, well, then tongues are for a sign. And it's for a sign not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. Whereas prophecy, he says, functions only, uh, primarily functionally for the believer, not for the unbeliever. Why? Well, an unbeliever comes into our assembly on a normal Sunday morning, and unless I'm preaching the gospel or the gospel comes into the message, most of what I'm going to be telling you, because you're believers and I'm preaching to believers, will be spiritually discerned, right? And at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, recall what Paul says about that that the unbelieving man cannot discern the things of the Spirit of God, neither can they know them because they are spiritually discerned. They are not going to understand most of what I'm saying. They'll hear my words. They'll recognize what, what I'm saying conceptually, philosophically perhaps, ideologically, but they will have no idea spiritually what's being said because the unbelieving man, the, the, those that do not have the Spirit of God, cannot discern the things of the Spirit of God. And so the prophecy, those that would speak unto edification in the church, they do that for the believer. And then Paul says the the speaking in an unknown tongue is a sign to validate to the unbeliever the power of God here. Stick with that because that's going to be important. With this in mind, Paul connects speaking in tongues to a sign intended for those who are unbelievers not believers, and then connects the existence of the specifically the sign of tongues. We're not necessarily talking about the other signs and wonders, healing and whatnot, but specifically tongues to an Old Testament prophecy regarding the nation of Israel. Let's come back to that final passage then that we talked about in part one. remember we were in Joel 2, and I took you to Joel 2, and we considered that prophecy, that unique prophecy in Joel 2 contained this prophecy about the initiation of the last days and how the last days would be initiated with signs and wonders, specifically that their sons and their daughters would prophesy, their old men would dream dreams, and their young men would see visions. Following this, there was a prophetic break, as we talked about, which does not reinitiate until the sixth seal is opened in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. But God links that first portion of the prophecy of Joel to To its fulfillment in Acts chapter 2 through the message of Peter on the day of Pentecost. So we read in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, this being the disciples, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So here we see the Spirit of God falling upon the disciples in the upper room. A mighty wind filled the house, cloven tongues like as fire appeared and sat upon them. And they all began speaking with other tongues. The passage goes on to define what this meant, as I mentioned already, that people from every nation in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost understood what they were saying, speaking in their own language as they heard it. And naturally, the people were very confused as to what was going on, thinking, in fact, that the people were intoxicated because they were so confused. Well, Peter stands up and explains what those people were witnessing. In verses 14 through 21, we read this in Acts 2. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words." For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, and on my servants and on my handmaidens will I pour out in those days of my spirit And they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So Peter here connects the events of that time directly to a sign of the fulfillment of God's prophecies to the Jewish people and the initiation of this time known as the day of the Lord. Now Peter quotes the whole prophecy here because he does not know that the whole prophecy will not be fulfilled in this day. Only half of that was fulfilled, right? We have no record in that day of the the other elements of this, the sun turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the great and the notable day of the Lord, but we do have record of that as I showed you in Revelation chapter 6. So he connects these events and he continues quoting as I mentioned, the part that had not happened yet, believing that this would happen very soon, and used it to compel these Jews from all over the empire of Rome to recognize this sign and this wonder as a definitive proof that the day of the Lord was at hand, and therefore the one that they represented, the one that these 12 apostles represented, Jesus Christ, was the Messiah sent of God, died on the cross for their sins, was buried and rose again on the third day. And that's to believe on his name. And the Bible says that in that day, 3,000 Jews confessed Jesus, were baptized, and were added to the church. Now, there's one more thing we need to talk about before putting it all together. You say, okay, pastor... So these Jews were, were added to the church, and I see where you're going with this. You're saying that this that signs and wonders were specifically intended for the Jewish people as the Bible reflects it, and uh, so as we look at signs and wonders in the New Testament, as Paul connects it to unbelievers, and as Paul connects it to a, a, a portion of Scripture uh, convincing unbelievers as a sign, and God always used signs and wonders specifically related to the Jewish people, I see where you're going, uh, but... Um, What about the relationship of the church to Israel? Maybe it is that God was reaching the Jews with signs and wonders and now it's time for God to reach the church with signs and wonders because uh, of of the uniqueness of, of God working now through the church and reaching out to the world. And this is something that we read about in Romans 11. Now, there's a lot of debate in the church as to this idea. Sometimes it's called replacement theology, the idea that the church has replaced Israel. This is not something we believe. We do not believe that the church has replaced Israel in God's plan. We do not believe that God's covenants to Israel have transitioned over to the church. And that that whole topic is, is a topic for another day. But we read in Romans 11 something which is quite definitive, written by the same man who wrote 1 Corinthians, Paul, and it's in direct relation to the physical nation of Israel. So in Romans chapter 11, verses 1 and then the first half of verse 2, the Bible says this, Paul writing, he says, I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid, for I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Now, Paul is linking God's people here directly to the seed of Abraham, right? Right? To, to the fact that he is blood-related to Abraham through the tribe of Benjamin. He's not relating it here to faith as he does in Galatians. He's relating this here to blood. Skipping to verse 7. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded, according as it is written. God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear, Unto this day, skipping to verse 11, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather through their fall, salvation has come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them unto jealousy. Notice we're still talking about the nation of Israel here. Salvation has come to the Gentiles to provoke Israel to jealousy. Israel is the, the, national Israel is the focus here. Verse 12, Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them be the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Hypothetically, how much more riches would there be if Israel came to Christ? Right? That's the question. Verse 13, For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office. He says, I'm speaking out of the fullness of my apostolic authority because you are the ones God has called me to. Verse 14, Verse 14, If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, Israel, right, his flesh, and might save some of them. For if the casting away of them, Israel, be the reconciling of the world through grace and the church, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? See how Paul is anticipating a day when Israel will come back to Christ. And when is he anticipating it? Just before the resurrection, right? Verse 16: For if the first fruits be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches. But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root. So Paul states here that Israel has not stumbled that they should fall. They have most certainly stumbled. They stumbled at the stumbling stone, which is Christ, right? Christ came into the world. He was not what they expected. They wanted a, a military leader. They wanted a civil leader. They wanted a political leader. And he was none of that. He came offering salvation by grace through faith. They stumbled, And because of that unbelief, uh, Paul likens it to an olive tree here and he says that some of them were broken off. This olive tree is not salvation. Don't let anyone ever tell you that this olive tree is representative of salvation here. It's not. Israel was never all saved. With the possible exception of that first generation that passed through the sea. We might say that that generation may have all, because they all passed through the sea, uh, they, they may have all accepted the Lord in that generation. But there has never been an all-saved Israel. There's always been people who have accepted the message of God and those who have rejected the message of God in the nation of Israel. So we're not talking here about, uh, when Israel, we talk about them being broken off. We're not talking about they were saved and now they're not saved anymore. This olive tree is speaking about election, and as we know from the Bible, as it relates to election, election never speaks to a person being saved. Election speaks to a purpose. So in Ephesians chapter 1, when it speaks of us being uh, predestinated and, and elect, it's speaking not of us being predestinated unto salvation, but if you go back and look at it, it is being predestinated or elect unto, to be conformed into the image of Christ, unto those who first trusted in Christ. Election is always unto purpose. And the purpose unto which we are elect is that we might be rightly related to God so that we can show the world how to be rightly related to God. And it is that election out of which Israel was taken. Israel as a nation had this purpose and they had failed at that purpose by rejecting the Messiah. And Israel, or the church, excuse me, the Gentile world was grafted into that olive tree of God's elected purpose so that now we are fulfilling the purpose of being rightly related to God so that we might show the world how to be rightly related to God. We bear the commission that Israel once bore to be rightly related to God. And this was transferred through the faith of the church from a physical body, Israel, to a spiritual body of all races and creeds given unto us at the rejection of of their Messiah because Israel yielded the right when they rejected him. So Paul says in verse 25, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits. That blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. Israel is blind to the truth of the gospel, and God is allowing it to be so until the fullness of the Gentile world comes into the church. But notice this, and so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob, using Israel's non-covenant name, rooting it in the, the, the physical lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for their father's sakes." For the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. So, Paul finishes this treatise by telling the church not to be proud and conceited regarding Israel's current state of stumbling, because their blindness exists by the will of God in part to give we Gentiles an opportunity to join the representative body of Christ. And that there's coming a day when they will be grafted back into that olive tree, this time by faith, not by the covenant of Moses, but by the covenant of of grace, The covenant of Moses grafted them in that first time so that they were a representative body through the law. When grace was presented to them, they rejected grace. The Gentiles accepted grace. And so they were broken off of that tree. The Gentiles were grafted into that tree. But there's coming a day when all Israel will be saved. This does not mean that every Jew from every generation of ever will be saved. This means that that generation who will as the Bible presents it in the tribulation period, be fleeing from Antichrist for their life as he seeks to destroy them and sees they will look upon him whom they have pierced as he, his feet touch the Mount of Olives and they will believe on him and the nation will wholesale turn to him as their deliverer, finally recognizing Jesus as their Messiah, at which time Jesus will then be free to be for them what he's always promised to be for them, to save them from their enemies and to save them from their sin. So this blindness exists in a time. And this future generation of which Paul speaks, the generation that will see the second half of of, of the prophecy of Joel 2, they will see that second half, and it will click on that day. And there will be a connection between the second half of Joel 2, well, when was the first half? fulfilled. And they'll open their Bibles and they'll look in Acts chapter 2 and they'll say, oh, that's when the first half was fulfilled. And it'll make sense. Because, see, it has to be that way because God made those na- that, that nation promises. And the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. So that right now, Israel are enemies of the gospel while simultaneously being beloved of God because they are his elect. They are the ones that he chose to do a work through. And so he will finish the work that he promised to do through that nation. You can't read Romans chapter 11 without seeing the physical lineage of, of, of Israel there. That can't, what, what, what's being described here is not the church. The church is not an enemy concerning the gospel, <laughs> while also um, beloved for the Father's sake concerning election. The church, by definition, has received the gospel with gladness. That is the church. So this cannot be the church that's being spoken of here. Now, why do I share all of this with you? Well, let's ask the question. If there were going to be a monumental historical transition whereby God would cease to operate through the single physical nation of Israel through whom he had been operating by the law of Moses for thousands of years, through through that specific legal covenant, and he instead were going to begin to operate through a new covenant with an eclectic group of people brought into a single spiritual nation called the church, how would God go about convincing the people whom he loves, so much so that Jesus always visited the synagogues first, so much so that Paul said, I go to the Jew first, then to the Greek. If that's the case, That God loves his people that much and that he reaches out to them first. How would God go about doing this? Well, we know how he would go about doing it because Jesus did it, right? Signs and wonders. Jesus did signs and wonders. Okay, now Jesus dies on the cross, he's buried, and he raises from the dead. He ascends to the Father. He's not there anymore. Now, how's it going to happen? Signs and wonders. How would God be able to prove to skeptical Jews all throughout the Roman Empire, the people that didn't see Jesus, the people that weren't a part of his ministry, how would he prove to them throughout the Roman Empire that Jesus Christ was their Messiah, has ordained a new body of believers called the church, and was working through them instead of working through Judaism, who had rejected him? The same way God always has, signs and wonders. So then what does this do for us? When we put all of this together, what do we get? God has always validated his messengers to the Jews through signs and wonders. Going all the way back to the book of Exodus, God has used signs and wonders. Joel promised the nation of Israel that the latter days, also called the day of the Lord, would be initiated through a subset of signs and wonders that when the Jews saw this subset of signs and wonders, they were to know that the day of the Lord was at hand, right? This subset of signs and wonders took place, the beginning of it took place on the day of Pentecost with Peter under the Holy Spirit inspiration, declaring that this was fulfillment and signifying that God had ceased working through the nation of Israel which had rejected Jesus and was beginning to work through the church built by the apostles of Jesus Christ who manifested these signs and validated the authority of the message through signs and wonders. Now these gifts began being manifest in the churches among believers throughout the empire so that Jews everywhere, and they were scattered throughout the entire empire from Rome all the way to Babylon, so that Jews throughout the empire, everywhere where they they were, they saw with their own eyes the signs of Joel 2 being validated, but not through the Jews. The signs of Joel 2 were being validated all around them through the church, and not just Jews, but Gentiles. And these signs were showing, were pointing the way not to continue in the Jews' religion and seeking, awaiting for Messiah in that sense, but to recognize that Jesus was their Messiah who had already come, who had died on the cross and who had risen again. As Paul taught on these things to the church of Corinth, which was a church that was tremendously imbalanced, right? They were a church that was being corrected for everything. Uh, it's, It's a book of correction, He de-emphasized these sign gifts. You saw that, right, in chapters 12, 13, and 14. He actually lessened their emphasis on these sign gifts and bubbled up these things that would make for edification in the body. Love one another, prophesy in your own tongue. Specifically stating at that time that that tongues were not a gift for the church, but rather a gift in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy to unbelievers. And specifically, if we connect the Old Testament prophecy to what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 14, tongues is there for unbelieving Jews, so that these Jews who have always relied upon signs and wonders to validate what God has been doing in the world around them, would recognize the transition from the Jews' law of Moses to this covenant of grace, by seeing the prophecies of Isaiah and Joel worked out in this body of believers called the church, thus validating the church's message and authority to speak for God. To that end, once the validity and message of this transition from the nation of Israel to the church of Jesus Christ was established among the world of the Jews... We would expect, as had always happened throughout all of Old Testament and New Testament history, that once the signs and wonders had done their work, the signs and the wonders would, as a general rule, cease. God did not keep doing the plagues of Egypt for the next several thousand years. They they functionally did their purpose, they served their purpose, they ceased. God worked the miracles through, through his prophets. The prophets showed what they needed to show. And then the prophets stopped doing these miracles. The Greeks were not impressed with sign gifts. We already read that in 1 Corinthians 1, right? The Jews seek a sign. What do the Greeks seek? Knowledge, right? Wisdom. That's what the Greeks wanted. They wanted knowledge, Strangers in distant lands didn't have Old Testament prophecies to reference. So what good would it do to them to see the prophecy of Isaiah 28 being fulfilled? They had no investment in Isaiah 28. The Greeks had no investment in Isaiah 28. And to whatever degree tongues might have been some sort of incoherent language, this is something that is not foreign to pagan occult, the the occult, to witchcraft, to paganism, to these sorts of things. This would validate nothing in the minds of a pagan So to this end, as an extrapolation of all of the principles as we've studied this topic through, from Old Testament to New Testament to purpose statement, combined with the practical and functional reality that we see around us, the conviction that sign gifts play a typical and vital role in the Western church at this time in history doesn't really align with what we see of the character of God. These gifts were intended as signs a validation of a message and the authority of the church in the eyes, before the eyes and in the ears of unbelieving Jews. And these signs are specifically useful to those Jews in the manner that only Jews would be able to appreciate in fullness because they were uh, fulfillments of their prophet's words and in the manner that God had always validated himself to them, namely signs and wonders. And it's for this reason that we regard sign gifts as not having a regular function in the local church. Now, four points as we close our our study out here. Point number one, the primary biblical purpose of sign gifts is to convince unbelieving Jews of Jesus. This is what I've been saying the whole sermon. Uh, So point number one is just review specifically tongues as we see it in in 1 Corinthians. Everything that we saw in Joel 2, Acts chapter 2, tongues, prophecy in the foretelling sense, visions, dreams, the primary purpose was to validate the authority and the message of the church. Signs have always been used this way. The Jews have a unique need to see it in order to believe, and God in his love and patience has always been willing to give the Jews what they have sought, signs and wonders, to validate his message. And if we carry this back to those passages where Jesus taught his disciples that they would do works greater than he by performing great signs and wonders, we we see that this was not wrong, right? We see that the, the New Testament church did do these great signs and wonders that Jesus promised that they would do. But that does not necessarily follow that every generation of the church would then do it too. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus told his disciples, you will do this. We saw them do that. It does not have to follow that we can do it too. So we've covered that all well enough. Let's talk about a couple of other things. Number two, if God sees fit to use signs at times and places to prove his authority, he absolutely can. This message was not intended, these three messages were not intended to put God into a box. God can't do fill in the blank. God can do whatever he pleases, okay? We speak to the fact that it is our conviction built upon the character of God and our study in the word of God of two things. First, that signed gifts have never been used or intended by God as a functional part of the operation of believers in the church one toward another. We believe the word of God, so we don't need signs and wonders to validate the authority of the Bible. Uh, we, we believe it. Second, the primary purpose was to convince unbelieving Jews of the authority and the message of Jesus Christ. But that does not mean that God cannot use these gifts in the lives of his followers at his discretion and according to his purposes. In the Western world, we would believe that the validity of the authority of God's word has been quite well established. We have all of our history to show the power of the word of God in the lives of people. We have the Reformation to show the power of the word of God in the lives of people through the printing press and everything else that has happened. God's word has a pretty good track record in Western culture. (laughs) Um, It's powerful. it's, It's valid. It's here. It's established. It's distributed. We've got it. We would not expect thus believers as a general rule to to, to bear these signs and wonders. There's no reason for it in the Western world. If Jesus speaks of Lazarus, the rich man and Lazarus, and the rich man is burning in hell and he sees Lazarus across laying in Abraham's bosom and the rich man begs for a, a drop of water to cool his parched tongue And Abraham says, sorry, can't cross the divide. And then he says, well, at least send Lazarus back from the dead. I know that my brothers will believe if Lazarus comes back from the dead and tells them. And what does Abraham say? If they believe not Moses and the prophets, they will not believe even if one raises from the dead. Foreshadowing the reality that they would not believe when Jesus raised from the dead. If that is the case, then among a civilization that has the Bible infused into its veins what are some signs and wonders going to do? If they will not believe the tremendous testimony of the word of God throughout all of Western history, they will not believe even if one rises from the dead. But I would certainly not be surprised if I read a missionary account of missionaries going to a place dominated by witcher, w- witches and wizards and spirits of darkness who has given a unique divine ability to manifest powers greater than those of the demons. That wouldn't surprise me a bit. I would not be surprised to hear of a man given the ability to speak a language he did not know to share the gospel with people who had never heard. That wouldn't surprise me a bit. I would not be surprised to hear that God used his people to manifest his glory in a way consistently with how he has done it throughout history. This would not surprise us a bit because we can go to the Old Testament, the New Testament, trace God's functional purpose, trace God's character, and say, wow, that's entirely consistent with what I would expect. And so I wouldn't be surprised. Now, what you believe on that is up to you. But as those of you know who who have heard me me speak to this before, that's kind of where I stand with this. And we all at least know this, right? God is not limited to our limitations and expectations. It is not inconsistent with God's word for us to hear of and perhaps among us even daily to experience such things. And let us be careful that we don't try in order to make our life feel a little bit more under control to put God into a box of our expectations and limitations. Number three, don't scorn those who are trying to honestly read and interpret the Bible. Um, You notice how much time and effort it took for me to lay this foundation, to give you this context, and to put it together in a coherent argument regarding our position on these things, which I don't even know if you agree with. What I have done is not some super secret or complicated process. I didn't give you a bunch of Greek words. I didn't tell you that unless you can read the Bible in Greek, you'll never understand this stuff. I didn't uh, go through, you know, 30 hours of history to try to build a foundation for this. I didn't do any of that. I just walked you through the Bible and showed you from the Bible what, what, what God has characteristically done and why we can expect him to be consistent in that, and then what Paul taught and how it is consistent with what God has characteristically done. But... That being said, it did take a good chunk of study, a good chunk of effort, a lot of mental laying all of this out, and not everybody has done that. Not everybody will do that. And by the way, remember this. With as much confidence as I present these things to you today, and I do have a lot of confidence in what I've told you, I can always be wrong. Remember that. Pastor Wickler can always be wrong. I'm not here to tell you what I think, and I'm not here to get you to trust in me. I'm here to hopefully, by God's grace, point you to what the Bible actually says and then compel you to whatever, with whatever capacities and gifts God has given me to obey it with all of your heart. There are plenty of us who have, and never, uh, having never put everything together in our minds in this way, in any number of topics, would still come to the same conclusions that, that I might have come to here, but there are also any number of people who read the words of Jesus, who read the words of Paul, who read about signs and wonders, who study the early church, and in honesty and simplicity before the Lord with a sincere desire to understand and obey the Bible, come to the conclusion that sign gifts must be a valid and functional part of the church because this is what I'm reading. Now, I would say they're wrong, that if we walk through the scriptures, we can build a, a coherent recognition that that's not in line with God's character and purpose. But don't scorn them. Don't place yourself above them, right? The church is not in the business of judging people. We need to always keep that on the forefront of our minds. We're all trying to figure all this stuff out. And as I said before, and I'll say again, we have enough time figuring out what's on the lines without trying to read between the lines. Have enough time obeying what's on the lines without trying to read between the lines. But the most important things of the Bible are indeed simple and accessible, yet there will always be disagreements, even among well-meaning, right-hearted people. And through the Spirit of God, we know the things pertaining to life and godliness, and then we seek unto accuracy. Now, I'm not saying back down from, from, from your position, What I'm saying is be patient with people and don't don't toss people aside because they don't believe what you believe. We've got plenty of that in the church, way too much of it, and it needs to stop. We do live in a time when information is abundant, often contradictory, and all of you know, if you've followed the news at all in this last year, you really, anything you wanna believe you can find someone to tell you is true. And you can't actually find out anything of what is true. Uh, truth is very hard to find these days because the democratization of information means everybody has a voice. And there's a lot of very compelling people saying a lot of very different things. So finding truth is complicated. It's always been complicated. It's more, perhaps more complicated today than it's been for some time. And what we have come to, we have derived over time, Sometimes through several generations of study, of debate, and of contemplation. The church was not built in a day. It did not just appear 20 years ago. Right? There's a long history of back and forth, of contemplation, of thinking, of debate, of of study, of writing. A person that believes these gifts have more merit in our time is not inherently evil or the enemy or a false teacher or an apostate. Let's be careful not to treat them this way. Be patient. All, all of 1 Corinthians 13, right? If 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 they don't believe what you believe about 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14, the answer is be 1 Corinthians 13 for for you, right? Be patient, have love, be meek, and then try to explain to them some of the, the elements of what you know about the Word of God. Finally. And just as ju- just as um as as long-suffering and patient as I call you to be with those who are dealing with these issues, I encourage you to be absolutely not long-suffering and patient with the modern charismatic movement. Um, Even among those who genuinely believe in these gifts for the church, there is no justification for how the modern charismatic movement operates. There is none. Speaking in tongues spontaneously without an interpreter, demonstrably opposing the instruction of the word of God requiring speaking in tongues or prophecy or dreams or visions as a manifest sign of salvation or a requirement for church membership or as a regular function of the local church assembly among believers, demonstrably unbiblical. To use signs in a way that blatantly contradicts the scriptures is exactly the scenario that Moses warned about in Deuteronomy 13, calling upon those prophets who did signs and wonders but did so apart from the teaching of the word of God to be rejected outright a ministry and charismatics are not by me, by by no means the only ones guilty of this but a ministry which manifests a blatant obedience disobedience excuse me to the principles of scripture in deference to some other supposed principles that do not bear the, the fruit of truth need to be rejected again that doesn't mean you reject all the people that go to that church but those teachers those movements those people who stand aloft and and disseminate this information, they are to be rejected. When a ministry or movement strays from biblical consistency and authority, it becomes a breeding ground for false teachers. And specifically within the charismatic movement as we see it today, this has become true. The emotive nature, the nature of, of this rooted in emotions and feelings rather than in truth lends itself to deceit so false teachers flock to it because it's easy there slim pickings low hanging fruit and so they fleece the flock of God in the name of God and rest assured they have their reward and so as we close out this topic i encourage you show show grace to those who are struggling with these things but do not abide those teachers who are blatantly disregarding the word of God in these manners. Do not not abide that. Do not not give them that quarter. Separate from that with with all uh, vehemence. That is the place where we do not want to go. So as we close out this topic, I bring you back to our passage in question, which bears the marks of exactly what we've talked about. When Scripture agrees with Scripture, as we compare Scripture with Scripture, it gives us a measure of confidence in our interpretation. So Paul writes this as we finally move on past Hebrews 2, 1 through 4, after, I think, six weeks. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will? Would you be surprised... That Paul would invoke signs and wonders and gifts of the Holy Ghost when he's writing to the Hebrews? I'm not. That's what we've seen, right? The whole time. And he's appealing to this reality here as he's writing to these Hebrew readers. This great salvation was testified unto Paul's intended audience, the, the, the Jews, first by his own words, then by eyewitness confirmation, and finally by signs, wonders, and miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost. All testifying to this same thing, this transition whereby Jesus has shown himself to be greater in message and in purpose than the law and the prophets, to be the end of the law and the prophets. Not that he has abolished them, but ha- that he has fulfilled the law and the prophets. The superiority of the message of the person, of the Son of God, to the servants of, the son of, uh, to the servants of God, is established through Jesus' message, through the witnesses that saw him, and through these signs and these wonders. And because all of this is true, remember the exhortation, it would behoove us that we would give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, right? Lest at any time we should let them slip. Let's close in prayer. Father, I pray for God's people, and I, 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 I pray specifically that this message would have been understandable, that the whole series here, these three messages would have made sense, uh, that I, I didn't miss anything, and that wherever I, in my human frailty and incapacities, fell short, that your spirit, through uh, um, the, the knowledge, the collective knowledge of, of those who are in this room, would make up the difference in the hearts and lives of those who, uh, who need it so that we can have an understanding of the nature of signs and wonders in this time. We long for the day when you will reinitiate those signs and those wonders, for that will mean the reinitiation of the final bits of the day of the Lord. And yet until that time, Father, help us to, t- to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. Help us to be faithful Help us to listen. Help us to listen with ears to hear and hearts to obey. Thank you that you have given us this so great commission through so great salvation. And may we, as your people, grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, exercising that great, more excellent way, having charity toward all men. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.